If you have your Bibles with you, and I trust that you do, open them up to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. So I was uh, putting together this uh, sermon. Uh, I realized at some point Friday uh, that uh, I had bitten off more than what I could chew. So as you have your outline in front of you, uh, we're not going to be getting to that uh, last point uh, this morning. Instead, we will hit that uh, next Sunday night when we come together for the Lord's Supper. We'll talk about uh, God's covenant sign to Noah and how it applies uh, even to us today as we participate in the Lord's Supper uh, next week. Uh, so with that being said, let's give our attention uh, here to, to the reading found in Genesis chapter 6. Remember, this is God's Word. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and, and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found fa- favor in the eyes of the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we ask that this morning your spirit would work in a mighty way and would show us glorious truth in this portion of your holy gospel. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We live in a world where it's sometimes hard to tell right from wrong. Now, why isn't that? Shouldn't right be right and wrong be wrong? Well, of course it's true, but unfortunately we've become infected with our society that has become very comfortable with the idea that what's right for you is right for you, and what's right for me is right for me. And the only thing that's really wrong is for you to think it's wrong what I think is right for me. Got it? Therefore, people are choosing to ignore real truth, and they're determining what truth is for themselves. And when people choose for themselves what's right and what's wrong, well, they're making a very bad mistake. For they're leaving the Word of God. And only in the Word of God can we really find truth. 
what people are trying to do is they're trying to replace God with their own agendas. What, what, what they're trying to do, actually, is to make themselves God at that moment. And I keep saying the phrase, people. And if we're really honest with ourselves, each one of us fight to do this exact same thing day in and day out. We need to learn to live within the power of the gospel. We need to learn to live within the power of the cross. To live any other way is not actually making ourselves stronger. It's not making us bigger. It's not making us more like God. It's making us weaker. The people of Noah's day were living weakly. What does weak living look like? And how can we avoid living in such a way? Well, let's look at our passage that we have before us. The first sign of weak living we see is that people choose sin over God. Here we have the sons of God marrying the daughters of man. In other words, God's people are leaving marrying God's people and are marrying people that are not God's people. And we know that when that happens, that, that, that uh, the, the, the corruption will come in to the lives of, of God's people and will ultimately end up in, in decaying that relationship with God's, and, with, with God's people. And, and this week I was reading an article in, in the USA Today back on Monday that, that was actually kind of talking about something similar to this, talking about how uh, back in 1985 only about 17% of people would marry outside of their own religion here in the States. But now that number has jumped up to closer to 40% in the last 25 years. And, and it's not just those that aren't Christians. In fact, uh, the Christian number is, is very much closer to that. And even the evangelical number is, is uh, staggering high. A sermon is not a sermon today on, on uh, Christians marrying uh, Christians. But just as a side note, uh, young people, I encourage you, you should be careful who it is that you choose to date and to marry. You know, we can't justify dating someone who's a non-believer by saying, well, they're not as evil as the person back in Noah's time. We must remember that if one is not with God, then they're against God. Parents, grandparents, you have a responsibility to constantly be teaching this truth to your children. We must not try to justify rebelling against God's word and pursuing a relationship that could end up in marriage to a non-believer. God's very clear throughout the Bible in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that believers are to marry believers. So the, so the first sign of weak living is that, is that people choose sin over God. And we see this happening here in the time of Noah. The second sign of weak living is, is to think that God doesn't care about my sin. Man's rebellion never goes unnoticed by God. Give your attention to verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is what the Lord saw. He saw the man's heart 
We can't justify our, our, our sin in any way and think that we're going to be getting away with it. It never happens. Here we see what happens when, when, when man's heart is, is apart from Christ. It, it's, it's what we would call total depravity. We, we see this throughout the Bible, in Psalm 14 and in Romans 3. There's, there's no unrighteous, no, not one. And if we don't understand how sinful we are, then we can fall into the trap in thinking that, that God's grace which comes to us is coming at a cheap cost. But that's, that's not the case. It comes at a very high price. I was speaking to a, a fellow PCA pastor this week who had just gotten back from a conference, and, and I was asking him how it went, and he was, it was kind of an interesting group that he was with. And he said that one of the, the people that he was with uh, asked him, he said, do you believe in those five points of Calvinism? And, and uh, my friend said, well, yes, I do. And, and, and uh, this guy said, well, I do too, at least except for I, I don't really believe in the adjectives that go along with them. And, and, and uh, so he believes in depravity, but just not that people are all that bad. But apart from Christ, we are that bad. In fact, this is a good, this is a good definition of who we are apart from Christ. The wickedness of a man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And we need to understand that we are sinful people. And we need to take that sin seriously. There's a, a pastor down in Houston uh, who was on Larry King's uh, show not long ago. And Larry King said, I understand you never speak about sin to your congregation. And he said, well, yes, that's right. And he said, well, why would you not do that? And he said, well, people have a hard enough time paying their mortgages and, and, and raising their children and, and, and keeping their jobs. They don't need to be bothered with hearing that they're sinful people. You know, and that's, that's really sad. And, you know, I don't like to stand up and preach about sin and you're a sinner and I'm a sinner. But the reality of it is that's who we are. And we need to understand that to truly appreciate God's grace. And so though society does try to tell us what's right for you is right for you and that there is no absolute truth, we know that this is actually a big lie. Yet nonetheless, we go about our business trying to hide our sins from God or trying to justify our sins to, to God. But you know what? You're never going to fool God. Never, ever, ever. He knows the truth about you. In verse 6, we, we, we read here that, that the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So this is anthropomorphic language. This is language made for us as, as human beings to try to understand. As Moses, who, who's the writer of Genesis, is writing this, he's, he's writing this in such a way in which we might observe things. We know that God is a spirit and he does not have a body like man, so we know that his heart is not grieved. We also know that God doesn't make mistakes, so he's not, he wasn't up in heaven at this point wringing his hands saying, oh man, what have I done, created these, these men. But it's this language to help us understand uh, the seriousness of our sin and, and our relationship to God, how it's broken because of 
our sin. Weak living people also say that there's no consequence for our sin. And then we already read that, that God had said that in 120 years, he was going to be judging men for their sin. And, and in Romans 3, we know that, that, uh, that all have sinned. And we know in Romans 6 that, 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 that the wages of sin is death. Sin brings judgment. And, and we need to understand that there are no innocent people. And, and, and once again, weak living people, or weak living people, they, they, they think, well, that's, that's a wrong way to think. Uh, uh, you know, God shouldn't judge anybody. That, that doesn't seem like very loving. In fact, that seems unfair. But we don't want to fall in that trap and thinking that, that when God judges sin, that it's unfair. Uh, Romans, as we've pointed out, is it's very clear that, that our sinfulness deserves death. So we don't want to fall in that trap of a weak living person and thinking that, that, that uh, God shouldn't be upset with our sin. So, so we have this, this big buildup of, of the sinfulness of man. And, and, and just right when that, that begins to feel almost oppressive, and this weight is upon us, we get verse 8. And we get God's grace jumping out at us. For it's God's grace is our only hope. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Go on and read with me the next section here, beginning in verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with the violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them and the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above. And set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Here we have God calling to Noah. And, and we read here that, that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Notice that qualifier here. Noah is, a, is a, definitely a faithful man, uh, certainly compared to those that were living in that day. Uh, he... he his life stood out. It says here that Noah walked with God. A, a, a better translation than Noah walked with God, it, it would be, it is with God that Noah walked, 
You see, Noah could have chosen to walk in the way of, of the, everyone else in the world, be corrupt, be full of sin, where everything about him was wrong. But instead, Noah chose to walk with God. And we have that same choice. We can choose the world or we can choose to walk with God. And, and, and so we're, we're encouraged here that Noah, through God's grace, walked with him. And, and God's judgment comes in a couple of different ways we, we see here as we look at this text. First of all, I want us to notice how, how God judges the faithful, and then we'll notice how God judges the wicked. God judges the faithful and, 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 and when he is dealing with, with Noah. You know, God's call to Noah is to go and to construct an ark. Now, Noah went and did as he was told, which, which reminds us, again, that, that strict obedience is always connected to, to righteousness. And, and in Second Peter, Noah is called a, a preacher of righteousness. So during this 120 years of constructing the ark, Noah, uh, we, we're, we're, we're sure, was preaching the righteousness of God to this sinful generation. generation. You know, Noah is found faithful because God pours out his grace on him. As uh, we already noted, uh, you know, that there's no one righteous. No, not one. In fact, if you go to, to, to uh, Genesis chapter 9, don't go there right now. But if you go to Genesis chapter 9, you'll see that, that, that Noah has some serious problems himself. Uh, Noah did not win himself to God uh, because of his righteousness, but because God made him righteous. He finds favor in God's eyes, just like every one of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, in God's judgment to the faithful, we see this word covenant for the very first time in Scripture found here in verse 18. It's the first time that it's actually used in the Bible. Now, here it says, I'm going to establish my covenant with you. It's, 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 I'm going to now establish my covenant, this covenant that I've actually had ongoing, because we know he made a covenant with Adam and Eve before they were in the garden, before the fall, and we know that he made a covenant with Adam and Eve after the fall, that he was going to supply the Redeemer for their sins. And, and so now he's confirming that covenant to Noah. And, and this is the first time that that beautiful word is used in Scripture. God is preserving Noah and his family. It's an example of God's covenant of grace to his people. But God doesn't just judge the faithful. God also judges the wicked. Every sin deserves the wrath and curse of God. Every sin deserves the wrath and curse of God. God was correct. He was right. He was just, meaning he was fair to act in such a way as destroying people for being sinners. And any thought to the contrary is wrong. Now, we should see God's judgment And it should serve as a warning and as a means of grace for us to repent of our sin 
before judgment would fall upon us. So when we think about this judgment of God, we have this example of the ark, and and the ark itself points to the cross. The ark is a symbol of judgment. Think about that horrific day when it started to rain. For 120 years, Noah had been constructing this ark. And, And then the ark's complete. And Noah and his family go inside and the Lord shuts the door. And then seven days later, the flood starts hitting the earth. Think about what it'd be like to be on the outside of the ark as God's judgment literally pours down on you and your household. Grandparents, parents, parents watching their children being consumed by the wrath of God, maybe first the youngest and then the next, and then knowing that God's judgment was coming for you next. It's a horrific story if you think about it. I was sitting there thinking, as I was working on this, thinking, how has this become one of our, our, our cute little children's Bible stories that we love to tell? You know, we have these cute little songs about the, 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 uh, the animals came in two by two, and Noah built the arch with, ark with pitch and barky barky. And, and, and you know, we, we, you know and if, if you're that way, let me tell you, I'm that way. Our, our, our nursery, if we did for our, our sons when they were infants, it, it was a Noah's Ark theme. You know, and, and you sit there and you think about the horrific destruction and judgment of sin on man, and it turns your stomach. But the reason that we can have Noah's Ark themed nurseries is because not only is the Ark a symbol of judgment, but it's also a symbol of rescue. For those that, that God chose and he put on the ark, inside the ark, there is peace. Inside the ark, there is refuge. In, in, inside of the ark, there's joy. Inside of the ark, there is safety. The ark serves as a tangible form of, of, of God's grace being displayed to his people. You know, the Lord had told Noah exactly how to build that ark. Gave him all the dimensions. He also instructed others exactly how to build the tabernacle and how to build Solomon's temple. And the ark preserved Noah and his family from the horrific flood. And the tabernacle and the temple sustained God's people from the horrific nations that are around them. And now God has given us his Holy Spirit and his word to help preserve us against these times of corruption and and sinful times that we live in. And and we should be grabbing hold onto those as Noah and his family were grabbing hold of the inside of the ark. We're told that, that Noah was instructed to build the, wo- the ark out of gopher wood. 
I mean, there's not an archaeologist around that can tell you what in the world gopher wood is. I, I, I've done so much research. There are a million guesses, and everyone says, but we don't know for sure. All right, nobody knows what gopher wood is. But what, something that's interesting as I was studying this is, is that the term pitch or, or the tar-type substance that, that Noah's told to, to put on the inside and the out of the, of the ark uh, as a water sealant uh, comes... That, that's, that's obviously a noun, but the Hebrew f- form of that word means to cover or to atone, to make a covering for. And, and here we have literally a, a, a foreshadowing of the atoning work that needs to be done to cover God's people from his judgment. You see, the ark points to the cross. Just as the ark shows us this horrific picture of judgment, certainly we know of the judgment that's found on the cross of Jesus Christ, where the Son of God, the innocent Son of God, takes our punishment. Remember, every sin deserves the wrath and curse of God. So Jesus Christ is nailed to the cross, spikes through his hand, spikes through his feet, stripped, beaten, spit upon, crown of thorns shoved into his head, spear plunged into his side. It's another horrific picture. It's horrific to think the judgment of our sin on Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ taking the sin of his people at the cross. But just as the ark doesn't just show us God's judgment, but also shows us God's rescue for his people, the cross is also a symbol of rescue. It is beneath the cross and on this side of the cross, that we have safety. It's a place of refuge. It's a place of peace. It's God's grace again shown to us in a very tangible form. If you don't have your trust in Christ alone for your salvation, if you're living a life that's a lie, a life of sin, if you don't think your sin matters to God, I would encourage you today to put your trust in this Jesus Christ who died the shameful and painful death on the cross to save sinners like you and like me. For when our trust is in Jesus alone, then the power of of the gospel works in our lives, then the power of the cross is alive in our lives, and we live powerful lives, not weak lives. We as Christians should want to tell others about the good news of the cross, a place where peace is found in chaos, a place where real wisdom is found, a place where sin and death are crushed. This is strong living. This is living that God intends for his people. We have true 
truth. Oh, for us to be bold to go out and share it with others. You know, it's quite the paradox. The the anguish of the flood and the peace of the ark. Think about where where the, the floodwaters come up and the ark settles. Quite a paradox to think about that. The punishment of sin on the cross of Jesus and the freedom and the forgiveness that is found at that exact same point. The point where judgment and grace meet together. A couple of weeks back, we sang the, the hymn, Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder. And the fourth verse struck me in a way it never had before. It says, Let us wonder, grace and justice join. Grace and justice join. And point to mercy's store. When through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. That's a that's a rich, rich verse right there. See, when we understand our sin properly we can begin to understand God's judgment of sin properly. We then can understand the depth of the mercy that God has for his people. When we understand this, we understand how much it is that God loves us. That he'd pour out this horrific punishment of our sin on his son, Jesus Christ. Once we begin to understand all that, then we can live strong lives by grace through the power of the cross. Let's pray together.